Dear Sir Martin Morbick, I'm normally very quiet and don't like making a fuss. I appreciate this opportunity to have my say and have prepared a statement that I'd like to read. I am here, but my brother and his family are not. I need to be his voice, because I know if it was the other way round, he would be mine. He would fight for me, I know he would. I lied to my eight-year-old nephew on the night because my brother asked me to tell him that it was going to be okay. I have to live for the rest of my life knowing that I lied and I told him it was going to be fine knowing that it wasn't. I urge you to take these into account of what happened during these calls. There may be no recordings or transcripts, but I know what I heard. I heard fear. I heard parents trying to be strong for their children. Sir Martin, I want to say to you that 72 people died as a result of what happened. None of them had to die. This could have been prevented and should have not happened. Please make sure there is change. So I'm very moved and it's very important to me to be sitting in the kitchen with a very, very dear friend of mine, Hanan Wahabi, as we come to the last episode of the podcast series. Hanan's brother lived on my floor at the Grenville Tower fire, and unfortunately him and his whole family passed away. And I don't remember how long afterwards, probably six months afterwards, I managed to track Hanan down. <laughs> because it was very important to me to pay my respects. It's important to me that we have, as we come to closing out the podcast series, come back to why we're doing it, which is that we don't want people to go through the pain and suffering that those around Grenfell have gone through. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. I um, just wanted to say also it's been... A a comfort knowing you as well uh, and knowing that you um, lived on my brother's floor and knew my brother, had contact with my brother and his wife and his children. I take a lot of comfort in that. And since knowing you, you've helped me in so many ways. Um, this kitchen that you're sitting in now, um, I don't know if, it, if I'd be living here if you didn't come with me to that meeting, to the housing meeting, when I thought I was, you know, left in the hotel not knowing where I was going to be moving and you helped me you know, saying I'm going to come with you. And you took me, we went to the council and met councillor and head of housing. And you told them when I broke down and I couldn't speak, you spoke for me. And uh, this is the property that they showed us on that very day. So thank you for that. We want change. Don't want all of them, any of them, 72 people who've passed, my family, everyone's family, my neighbours, my friends, they're, you know, they're, deaths who have been in vain but at the same time also I don't want anyone ever to experience such tragedy This is the Catastrophe Podcast I'm Jill Koenig 
a consultant working in high hazard industries to develop the leadership and culture needed to prevent the worst from happening. In 2017, I watched horrified as fire destroyed the tower block opposite mine. 72 people lost their lives as London's Grenfell Tower burned. I felt helpless, grief-stricken, desperately sad. Because these disasters don't just happen, we create them. That's why I wanted to make this podcast and write the book that accompanies it. To apply what I know about safety and change. To speak to other experts and frontline workers to expose how our established ways of thinking and working cause catastrophes, and ultimately to show how we can all prevent them if we change our approach. And with me is Matthew Price. We met after the Grenfell Tower fire in which 72 people died and That's where we're going to return today in our final episode to look at what part grief can play in change. Jill, from your perspective, why did you want to look at grief here? Because it's it's kind of a different starting point than all of our other episodes. So my own experience of Grenfell has been, in some senses, existential and transformational. I'm simply not the same person that I was before the fire happened. And the process of grief, of going through despair, of searching for hope, has been incredibly important. And as you mentioned at the beginning, we'll do that with Hanan Wahabi in a moment. We're also going to talk to Julian McRae from Engage Britain, which is a charity that hopes to drive change through bringing different and diverse people together. But before that, let's just briefly introduce Hanan. Why did you want her to come into this episode? So I didn't know Hanan before the Grenfell Tower fire. It was incredibly important to me to meet her after I found out that her brother and his entire family had died simply to pay my respects and she is one of the most courageous inspiring beautiful people I've ever met I think one of the other reasons why it was important for me to end, you know, with Hanan in the conversation and grief present is we are over 3 million deaths globally for the pandemic. And one of the things which I was just reminded in this conversation, I found grief very lonely. And in fact, one of the only places I can be myself is with Hanan. In the family, I think you're all trying to protect each other from your pain. Um, So, for example, my children, I know that they have been traumatised. You know, they're they're bereaved, they're survivors. And I feel like sometimes I've kind of got to 
mask my feelings and how I am in order to kind of protect them. And then when I, it kind of, I just can't hold it anymore, then I feel like I'm failing as a mum as well. Um, because, you know, your parents are supposed to be, they're supposed to be your rock. They're supposed to support you. And many times they have to support me. Um, so it's been difficult, I think, within the family. But also, like you said, going to work. I've been working um, since September 2017. And I think that was, that's been masking for many, many, yeah, many, many years. I said in a conversation earlier, we were talking, I ended up in hospital two years after the tragedy where I was unable to walk. And I do feel that's trauma um, where we kind of just keep everything in, where we're so low, you know, you're lonely. It's, there's the grief, there's the PTSD, there's everything. I mean, you kind of just go outside your house and, you know, listen to the sirens and it literally just, my I, I want to freak out. Or if I'm, where I'm, I work in a school, you know, the fire alarm goes off and I just can't, there's no way they can get me out of that building. I literally, collapse, I freeze, I freeze and and I just have a re really bad panic attack. And it's just, you know, I work in a school with children and for them to kind of witness that, I think it's, so even people that weren't there on the night or weren't impacted because they knew somebody or people are impacted just by knowing us sometimes, you know, by being in our presence I think we sometimes it's, although you try to protect, you can't help but transfer, mm. not intentionally, the pain. Is there something positive that comes out of it as well, that comes out of the grief and the trauma, that ultimately as you start to see a way through that, if that's the right way of phrasing it, that you feel could be positive effect on others? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think there is positive. Um, like what I mentioned, obviously, that is there, but there is also the fact that obviously my children have come out with me, and they are with me, and they are here. I can touch them, I can feel them, I can hug them. That is something that I just don't want to take for granted, and I feel like that I'm, you know, much more, you know, as parents or as people, not just with your children, with your friends, with your family, with it. Life's just it's so fast paced you're rushing around work and they're like you know let's sit down and have dinner or oh, quick it's all a rush but now I feel like I'm just trying to take everything slow and everything in my stride and I just kind of try to say that to other people and I think one way for everyone in the whole world to understand what I'm talking about is this pandemic this pandemic I think has opened our eyes up to what truly is important to us and I think that's what I want to kind of give. And at the end of the day, the smallest thing would kind of stress you out. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I, all I say to the children is that it's not the end of the world. You know, it's not the end of the world. You know, I'm just struggling at work at the moment because of the impact that the tragedy has had on me. And my concern is I will be jobless if it continues to impact on me like this. Jobless. I'm a single mum as a result of the tragedy. And... And I'm worried about, obviously, you know, making sure my kids are okay financially. And then I'm actually, do you know what? We're going to be okay. You know, we're going to be okay. And I have so much faith. I'm, you know, obviously as a Muslim and as a religious person who's just has a lot of faith in God. I do believe he has us and he has every single one of us. And he will make sure that everyone will be okay.
we all know, and it's a theme we've picked up on throughout the podcast series, we all know about the moments when those in positions of power and authority fail to listen to those on the front line. And in this case, the authority was, one of the authorities was the local council and those on the front line were the residents. And I, I wonder, through the work that you're doing at the moment, whether you can see a way to improving those connections so that residents' voices are heard and listened to, and whether you believe that that might be one of the ways, one of the many ways in which we can learn a proper lesson from this. Yeah, Matthew, I do, actually, I do, I do think that we can learn. I mean, before the tragedy, I was uh, one of the seven in the Grenfell Compact group. And, you know, I experienced the way we were treated, you know, we as the compact, but also us as a community. So the reason why I agreed to be on that compact was to try and support people and be their voices for those who couldn't speak English, for those who had a disability and weren't able to kind of get there. And I think this is the same. You know, this is a memorial commission, but at the same time, I want the memorial that's going to be there is what we want, what we want, where we want it and how we want it. And when I say we, I mean the whole community that have been impacted by this tragedy. And that's why, yeah, we do have um, regular meetings with bereaved survivors at Lancaster West, the wider community, and then we sometimes have meetings together because we want their voices. We want them to make this decision. And, and that sort of communication was clearly so lacking before the fire. I do think if, had we been listened to, this definitely wouldn't have happened. It would not have happened had we been listened to. The concerns that were raised from the community, from all of us, although they were there on given evidence, it was evidence from all of us. You could see that it was predicted. What if this did happen? What if it happened? And it did. And it did. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> if only they listened. If only they listened, all of those people would still be here. 72 people would still be on this earth. Yeah, so I just think I want them to listen. We need them to listen. Are they going to listen? I don't know. I don't know, to be quite honest. I'm hopeful, but I don't know can see there's still a lot of changes that need to happen for example phase one inquiry I and mean, how many of those recommendations that were suggested how many have been you know that just i think that in itself is a massive sign to me and i think to everybody so just to pick up on what hanan was saying about evidence at the inquiry eddie defan who's campaigned really for residents voices for a hugely long period of time and co-authored the famous blog that was published seven months before Grenfell predicting a catastrophic fire. When he was giving evidence in his closing, the closing question was, and I'm going to be paraphrasing, but was, um, what do you wish the KC TMO and RBKC had done differently? And his response was, if they treated us with dignity, humanity and empathy, then maybe we can prevent another catastrophe.
So we're going to move now to our final guest, Julian McRae from Engage Britain. And why did you want to bring him into the final conversation? It was very important to me to end both the book and the podcast with hope. And I do think hope lives in all of our diversity, our collective wisdom, and the work that Julian does brings the voices of citizens into policy making and decision making. And I do think there's an enormous amount of hope in that space. Where do you think change begins? That's a fascinating topic, isn't it? Um, The biggest thing that I've figured out in my career is that it seems to people who are inside the system that change has to start in the really formal institutions of the state. It's really policymakers, goodness knows what that phrase means, but this strange breed who think up ideas. If you actually look at where big ideas and big change comes from in our society, and I suspect any society, it starts in communities, it starts with people, it starts outside government. That's where those ideas are formed and that's where they come together. And eventually for things that really need government action, it comes in through politics to those uh, more formal institutions. But the big ideas start out in society itself. But here we are talking just after another set of elections in Britain, where people believe that they have voted for those who will bring in change. A lot of citizens still see it as being a top-down thing. They do, but the key thing about what's going on at the moment is actually people feeling that they're being listened to and some of their concerns are being taken seriously. Now, you know, lots of people want to dismiss that. There's loads of um, people who want to say, oh, but people don't know what they're talking about or what they're voting for. But if you actually look at what's going on, it's really about people feeling, look, there's somebody who's trying to listen to what we're saying and trying to connect with that. Um, And that's right at the heart of how politics should work. Now, whether that politics can lead to change has got a big test coming up for it because it's very easy for government parties to suddenly say, right, okay, now let's go away and think up the answer and cascade it down to places in this country and that's really going to make a difference. What will be really fascinating is if they can pick up on what I think is probably the biggest lesson of the pandemic, that actually there's huge amount of strength and resilience in every community in this country and actually people have lots of ideas ideas and things they want to do for their communities, for other people in their society, people in their family. And actually, the role of the state is not really to come up with ideas and cascade them down as though the population was some grateful recipient. Um, It's actually to get behind and support people who are doing very real things in their day-to-day lives, looking after some of their elderly relatives, watching out for people they really care about and their friends, providing some support when people are feeling down. Thinking about mental health is not just something that's a treatment, but actually something where we care for loads of people in our communities and we really want to help and uh, support them. So it's really a different way of thinking about change. It's The state isn't the driver of change, communities are, and how does the state help those communities to really make a difference? Is it something that works best at the local level? 
I think it's so much easier to see it at the neighborhood level. Lots of people are doing it, but actually it has to work at a national level as well. And that's been one of the problems for you know lots of things we do as a country, um, that our national level, particularly in England, because it's such a centrally governed country, um, that the national level becomes so disconnected to what actually matters to people in their own lives, so disconnected from actually the people who are delivering the services as well. It can't learn from what they're talking about and it builds up this sense of alienation between those two different levels. That's really interesting because, Jill, I mean, I can see when you talk about the change that you actively bring to companies, I can see how that works because I can imagine a company and how change filters upwards and downwards and Julian talking about you can see it in a neighbourhood setting, for instance, in a local community. How do you envisage it at the national level? One of the things in the journey that I've been on over the last nearly four years now is when government hasn't responded, particularly with making buildings safe, really where change gets driven is by people in the communities who are impacted actively causing change through the political system. So through their MPs, through lobbying, um, through creating groups that get together. Like the cladding scandal is a perfect example of that. And I do think um, that's where hope lives because we can all blame the government and whether it's party political or not, just everything I've looked at over my research into why we don't learn is waiting for governments to change is a flawed strategy. But what we do have now with social media, with the connection, is the ability to democratize change. So rather than sitting and complaining and going, well, the government should, I think there's almost a moral imperative argument for us to, if there's something you're passionate about, make that change happen and and find like-minded people to work with you on it. Does that resonate with you in the work you're doing? Completely, actually. Um, I think that there's so many opportunities that are coming up at the moment um, for people to actually get involved. And it is... um, Quite often people think about new technology as being actually quite... suddenly realise it's quite dangerous. And it can be. Um, You can see in various social media, online, actually humans do conflict. It's one of the things, we're like all other species on this planet, we do a bit of conflict. And if you do text-based anonymous stuff online, it leads to conflict. But there's another thing that's going on. Um, it's actually, just as it is in the physical world, it takes a lot of effort to build institutions, as it were, that allow us to bring out the thing that is really important for human beings, that we're incredibly good at collaboration. Um, that's actually the reason we're distinguished from every other species on this planet. We're really, really brilliant at it. And if you look through the whole series, we've been looking at the value of diverse voices. So how can you bring diverse voices together to solve things? So rather than waiting for government to come up with some policy, how can you, when we want to learn what lessons we want to take forward from the pandemic, get a citizens forum together and thrash those things out. If you're looking at how can we successfully implement uh, the inquiry findings, how can we actually deal with the cladding scandal, rather than sitting and waiting for government who frankly is not moving on that stuff, get all of the stakeholders together and as Julian says, build on what connects people because I do believe everybody wants everybody to be safe, there's just barriers in the way. So getting people together and 
actually the difference and the agreement is your opportunity for collaboration. And for me, that's really where hope lives. And I was also thinking about, while Julian, you were talking about collaboration, I was thinking about, well, one of the problems with Grenfell, there was no collaboration beforehand. We could go through the series and see that pattern repeating time and time and time again. So then my, my question as a cynical journalist is, how do you get to the point where there is collaboration and where people actually value it? Because it costs to do that. If you look around the country, you will find huge amounts of people actually collaborating in their local communities. Uh, my organisation I run, Engage Britain, um, is doing a lot of work at the moment in the charitable sector, essentially. Uh, we're funded by philanthropists um, to essentially facilitate people to come together. Some of that costs a reasonable amount of money if you want to bring people together physically, but actually the technology is just changing the way that works so, so rapidly. I'm not saying that technology is the solution here or not the solution. I'm just saying cost is not a problem anymore. And actually, all my experience of when you get people, if you stop someone in the street and say, do you want to discuss some policy issue about, you know, unless it's actually the future of your local A&E, uh, the answer will probably be no, or I've got other things to do, whatever. If you can just get them over the line, just very quickly, into a discussion about the big challenges facing the country or their community, what you'll find is suddenly people, yeah, they've got lots of ideas, they've got lots of thoughts, they want to be part of it. And that is the key thing for how we build what some people would refer to as deliberative democracy. My um, cynicism is actually with Will government listen, which is what I love about um, Julian's organization, because it's both about bringing voices together. So it's about that part, which I've found a lot of organizations do. But then Julian's commitment is actually, well, how do you have that end up informing government policy? And in my experience of the last four years, I am somewhat cynical about whether government will what did you call it? Deliber deliberate democracy, which is a fabulous term. Is is government vested in that? Because that would require them changing how they think and moving away from a autocratic, top-down, we're going to tell you what to do and you know, in our ivory tower, we have all the answers. So I'm interested in your views on that. That's just a, the wonderful question, the question which is the by far the most difficult bit. So I don't actually believe there's any real problem bringing people together to figure out ways forward on big challenges that face this country. That's not actually all that difficult to do. Um, what you have to do, though, is connect that up where you need to with if you like, our national politics and national decision-making. There is a cynicism about politics that it's just people in it for themselves. That's never been my experience of actually working with politicians. Genuinely, you have people who are looking for, yeah, where are some ideas that could make a difference on this? How can we build some ideas? Even if a little part of that is, yeah, we want to win some votes and uh, we want to actually get into power. But actually, can you do something that's really going to change and last and make this country a better place? Let me give you an example that's all very theoretic. Um, in Ireland recently, a few years ago, they had a referendum on abortion. And uh, abortion has been a huge political issue in Ireland for decades. The political wisdom 
was that if you were going to do anything, well, preferably if you were a politician, stay away from the subject, but if you had to do anything, it would be the smallest minor incremental change that you try to put through to change uh, the laws in Ireland. In advance of the last referendum, they had a citizens' assembly, so got you know, around 100 people together from all walks of life in Ireland and got them to discuss what they would do. Now, five of the six weekends were about the detail of the legislation, how that might work. And there's a lot of legislation and uh, thought in all this. But one of those weekends was people talking about how the issue of abortion had affected their lives. And on both sides of the debate, and some of those stories you can believe are truly harrowing. Now, actually what happened in the Citizens' Assembly is they were doing the detail of the legislation, the touchstone that people kept going back to, well, would this actually make a difference in some of those really difficult cases? And it led to a legislative proposal which was actually for quite a radical change. Not a step change, not a little incremental change, but a big jump. And actually when the referendum occurred, that was the thing that unlocked the politics of it. It was, yet again, real people, real lives, can we make a difference to those? If it had been, no, no one can test it. There wasn't an alternate referendum, which was run on the incremental, but it's far less likely that could capture people's imagination and see that change. And far less likely it could have helped the politicians because they were actually wrong about the politics. The society had moved ahead of where the politics had got trapped and it was ready to make that jump. And you wouldn't have known it if you hadn't got 100 citizens together, spending six weekends going through that, and a set of people who were prepared to share their deep stories about what and how that, uh, the situation around abortion had affected them in Ireland. And I fully believe that in many areas of our public life, you just need to unlock the change we already know we want and help our politicians actually understand, well, look, this is the route through it. And it's not a triangulating, dumbing down one. It's actually something that inspires us uh, to see a better future. I love that story and particularly the weekend where they shared. And I, I often think we take that heart out of our decision. So, you know, when we're recording at my flat, uh, you look on Grenfell. So I'm confronted by the building every day and it keeps it real for me. And I often think about, well, politicians are sitting there, you know, deciding how they're going to deal with the financial trades-offs of making buildings safer, but they become removed from the story um, and from the deep impacts. And I do think one of the critical things for change, which links back into grief, is staying close to the heart of the matter and how it actually impacts people. And I don't think we're good at doing that. I think we, you know, take it into policy domains or we take it into strategy. We do everything to push away from the deep human cost of the decisions that we make. And that has to become front and centre of what we do. In thinking about sort of wrapping this whole series up, Jill, for me, there's a thread that runs through each of our episodes. And and it's also a thread that runs through the conversations that you and I have had since we met in those hours after the Grenfell fire. Um, and of, <laughs> it's where Julian took us to right at the end of his conversation. It's listening. It's giving people a voice. Um, and it's taking in different perspectives that 
well, in, in a lot of the conversations we've had through the series, if those conversations have been had, might have prevented catastrophes. And then to link back to what Julian's saying, actually, it, it, it's about creating a better society and listening to people and, and, and having policies that actually tackle the problems that people experience on a day-to-day basis. And and in my mind, it feels a very simple thing, almost too simple to be the key to this, but that's where I get to. And I think that's really my vision for the podcast, and I hope we've accomplished that, was to, again, bring different voices together around themes and see what happened. And I do believe in that space of genuine inquiry, diversity, something else becomes possible. But when I reflect back on the sessions, one of the things that strikes me, which we haven't really touched on in an enormous amount of depth, perhaps a little bit with Andy Brown, but the importance of leadership, because if we're going to listen to people, that requires creating a certain environment where that's possible, and that's a function of leadership. And if we if we look back at examples of bad leadership, you know, the blame game, how politics leads to this toxic environment where it's almost impossible to learn, or not dealing with the known issues in governance and accountability, et cetera, et cetera, through to these beautiful examples of leadership. If you think about the self-awareness of Jim and Laura in episode two, talking about Boeing, or if you, you, you think about Rose and her extraordinary story the, and the frontline workers, Shadira and Louise, talking about the pandemic. So there's this thread that's both the listening and bringing diverse voices, but also the role of leadership. And that that's really down to all of us. So rather than sitting and waiting and moaning about politicians not changing, it's perhaps our obligation to all be leaders and change. And then who knows what will happen. Catastrophe was hosted by Matthew Price and me, Jill Koenig, author of Catastrophe and Systemic Change. It's a Mother Come Quickly production and sponsored by my company, JMJ Associates. If you enjoyed it, do feel free to share with friends and colleagues. And of course, if you'd like to write a review, I'd love to see your thoughts.